You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. It's time to remember 2014. Sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. Because Pagliacci Pizza are going back to back to the Super Bowl, and so are we in 2014. <laughs> Oh boy! Well, it started on a high note.、Uh, the Seahawks opened the 2014 regular season hosting Green Bay in the traditional Thursday night opener, and coming up with a 36 to 16 victory, scoring 19 unanswered points after the game was tied at 10 in the second quarter. Aaron Rodgers was held to 189 89 yards on 33 attempts, as he never threw a pass in Richard Sherman's direction in that game. Really, a look at the future of Aaron Rodgers' career. That game was so much fun. <laughs> it was very fun. The, the Thursday night, like you know, the first couple weeks of the NFL season are some of the most fun weeks. You're just excited that football is back. It's still sunny nice, outside. Yeah, yeah it, it was like a beautiful day. It's we're celebrating winning the Super Bowl, playing the Packers, and winning the game comfortably. But also the part about. Rogers not targeting Sherm, and it was just like Sherman is in. We, I mean, we definitely thought he wasn't going to win the Defensive Player of the Year because he wasn't going to get numbers because nobody was going to throw at him. Yep, pretty much. So that that <gasps> high lasted one week as the Seahawks then lost thirty twenty one at their nemesis, the San Diego Chargers. <laughs> Phil Rivers, their nemesis. Uh, then needed overtime to win a Super Bowl rematch versus Denver in Week Three that we expected to be that Thursday night matchup, but they saved for a little bit later after a late Pey- Peyton Manning touchdown as part of a furious comeback from a 17-3 Broncos deficit entering the fourth quarter.、Uh, the Seahawks then lost back-to-back games home versus Dallas and at St. Louis thanks to a Johnny Hecker fourth down conversion to slip to three and three on、wow. the season.、Uh, and quickly on that Broncos game. Really emblematic of what we've seen from the Seahawks defense over and over and over again during this era. That drive that he except had during his, the 2013 NFC Championship game.、Uh, yes, holding up in that one. I mean, they still let the Niners drive down the field. They just got one big play. But like being able to drive, you know, it was Matt Ryan, it was Peyton Manning, it was Aaron Rodgers. It just happened over and over and over again in this defense. But that touchdown drive that the Broncos had, if I'm recalling this correctly, it was like 23 seconds. It was one of the fastest touchdown drives we've ever seen. Just like whoa! It was one of the you like get your hair knocked back. You're just like, Phew, okay. Well, there was a, there was a busted coverage. They ran some sort of like a switch verticals play, is my vague recollection. I mean, not seen this play in six years. It's all right. We called a Marshawn Lynch fumble. Uh, quarterback. <laughs> oh, he's doing well. We're gonna get, we're gonna get to that, good sir. We're gonna get to that.、Uh, let's see here. Oh boy, it was it was a 41 second drive. Hauschka kicked a field goal at the 59 second mark to make it an eight point game, and they in 41 seconds scored and then got the two point conversion to tie it. Well, wait, what did I say? 26 seconds. That was pretty close. You said 23, I think. That that one just、uh, that drive, seeing that was just like Jesus. Okay. There was there was actually the amazing thing it was forty seven seconds. There were two incomplete passes and a spike. They never took a timeout on that、wow. entire drive and scored in forty one seconds. It was it was the most Seahawks defense drive. 
Uh, the, the two, there were only two completions, a 42 yarder to Emmanuel Sanders and then a 26 yarder to Jacob Tammy for the touchdown. Wow, Jacob Tammy. All right. Okay. So the Seahawks won 13 nine at Carolina to start a three game winning streak. And then after a loss at Kansas City, who looked dominant at that point, won the season's final six games, highlighted by a 19 3 win at San Francisco on Thanksgiving. Oh my God. It's Richard Sherman and Russell Wilson walked off the field uh, eating turkey legs. Them eating just piles of turkey on the 49ers field. I mean, this basically ended Jim Harbaugh's tenure in San Francisco. It was just a great year for the Seahawks to play on NBC on Thursday night because the Packers game and that 49ers game. We were tense going into this game, too. I think the Niners went into a huge dance, like... They went into a huge slide after this, but they were still an extremely good team going into that game. And we really, it's funny because, you know, obviously the Niners dynasty has come roaring back, but at the time we felt like that was it. We killed, we, we have slayed the 49ers. They're done. That version of the 49ers. The, both those teams came into the game seven and four. So it was for the NFC West lead. And it started a four-game losing streak for the 49ers before they won their meaningless season finale at Arizona to get back to 8-8. Eight and eight. Uh, Also included in that losing streak, of course, a 17-7 loss to the Seahawks in Seattle. Uh, and the Seahawks, the six-game winning streak, locked up the number one seed for the second consecutive year in the NFC in the division round, they faced the Carolina Panthers for the third time in the past two seasons, winning 31-17 behind three Russell Wilson touchdowns. Cam Chancellor with a late 19-yard interception yes. return. Yes, Ce- sealing it. Yeah. Cam going back he the other way. Pretty Cam on Cam violence. This was also the game where Cam Chancellor... This was also the game where Cam Chancellor leaped first did the leaping over the center. That play. was the Panthers game. Yeah. But I mean, that, it was a he got cold for a, a penalty. Pretty fun game. Yeah, I think the refs are just like, "What the fuck was that?" Well, no, he <laughs> ran into the, ran into the kicker. Oh, uh, after jumping over. Yeah, it wasn't because of the jumping. It was a running into the kicker, so he blocked the kick, but they got a second oh. chance and then made the the field goal at the end of the first half. That he was also doing it at the end of the half because there was no potential for them to like go for it and score. Yeah, Interesting. Definitely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I definitely will never forget. It was right in front of us when Cam picks that ball off, and it just happens so fast. Like the the pass is thrown, and then instantly it's interception, intercepted, and he's gone down the field. And that's one of the most fun plays that you can see, where you're like backed up to the goal line, or you know they're close, they're in the red zone, and then the ball just changes directions, and there's nobody within a mile of Cam Chancellor. All right, these that set up. The NFC Championship game against the Packers, a rematch of that opener. The Seahawks trailed 16-0 at halftime as the offense, one of the slowest starts we ever saw from the Seahawks offense. And the defense wasn't so hot either, but Green Bay settled for field goals of 18 and 19 yards in the first quarter. The Seahawks finally got on the board with a 19-yard John Ryan touchdown pass to Gary Gilliam on a fake field goal. Wow. John Ryan to Gary Gilliam. Yeah, Gary Gilliam converted tight end to offensive lineman. Uh, that time paying off. The, it was he was George Fant before George Fant was George Fant. <laughs> they both went to Penn State too, right? 
No, George Fant did not. He went to like Western Kentucky. Oh, I guess I was just thinking of Gary Gilliam. I remember playing a college football video game with Gary Gilliam as a tight end. Um, so that wasn't until the 444 mark of the third quarter that the Seahawks scored at all. Early in the fourth quarter with 1053 left in the game, Packers add a fourth Mason Crosby field goal to go ahead 19 to 7. And the game the, the game's zone. over. The game is yeah. over at this point. Like we're sitting there, it has been a whole, the Seahawks have been able to generate no offense. Their only touchdown is because of a trick play. Uh it's just a terrible day. Russ is being hounded. And, like, Russ wasn't Russ for most of this game. Like, this wasn't the Russell Wilson that we had come to know. before. This was before we even knew that if Russell Wilson was touched by rain, that he became a different player. Did it rain that day? Oh, did it rain that day. It was terrible. Uh-huh. It was just, like, the, it, was, it was wet and it was cold. I mean, it was fucking January or whatever. In yeah. Seattle, like this, this was normal weather. It was also a late game too. Yeah. Uh, so, and the sun sets in January in Seattle at two thirty p.m. No, it was, actually, it was an early game. It was three thirty Eastern. So this this was the first game. Or three no. Eastern. Yeah, it was the first game. Oh, we and so we came back and saw the Patriots the d- just game. Yeah. dismantle the Colts. Uh, but there was actually a lot more lows to happen after they went down. <sighs> By that uh, 22 to 7 score, they punted at the 50 with 7:01 left. They got the ball back with 5:13 left near midfield, and then Russell Wilson was intercepted again I've... on another pass intended for Jermaine Curse. And Packers punt the ball back with 3:52 left. The Seahawks take over at their own 31, down 15 points. They score a touchdown just on the correct side of the two-minute warning. Still onside, decide to onside kick because they've already used two of their timeouts uh, on that previous series that the Packers had the ball. Chris Matthews, who is a name which is a name none of us know at that point, recovers the onside kick, and the Seahawks then very quickly. Who is the Who is the Packers player? Was it Ro- Richard Rogers? Is that right? I don't think it was. It might have been, though. But I thought it was someone who wasn't still part of the team. No, Richard Rodgers, it was Brandon Bostick. Richard Rodgers actually recovered an onside kick that the Seahawks once had against the Packers. So that's probably what you're thinking of. Uh, So the Seahawks march down and score score quickly. A little too quickly, as it turns out. With a minute 33 left, Marshawn Lish breaks off a 24-yard touchdown. And then the two-point conversion, one of the most amazing plays in Seahawks franchise Also, history. the touchdown before then of Marshawn walking into the end zone. Just the coolest shit we've ever seen. Right? To take the lead in the NFC, the most improbable lead that they've taken. Marshawn Lynch is walking into the end zone. There's never been a cooler moment in the history of sport. <laughs> I mean, maybe not even the. It might not have been the coolest Marshawn Lynch moment. No, but it was just like cold. It was like Marshawn Lynch walked into the end zone to take the lead in the NFC Championship game. Nobody does that. Is such a beast mode thing to do. Yeah. So then the Seahawks go for the two point conversion uh, to try to. Did I say it was twenty two seven? It was nineteen seven, I guess, when they scored that 
that last field goal. So then the Seahawks go up 20-19, as you mentioned, go for two to try to make it a three-point game. Russell Wilson runs all the way backwards to about the Seahawks' 20-yard line and throws like a 20-yard pass for a two-point conversion to Luke Wilson. So... One of the most amazing plays. I'm looking at an NBC Sports Northwest remembering the 2015 championship game, and there is uh, Ben Baldwin's tweet about the game. What did he he say? Uh, He was was posting a video of the John Ryan pass. So the Seahawks left a minute 33 on the clock. Aaron Rodgers marches the Packers down to the Seahawks. 30-yard line. We knew it was coming. We knew this was coming. I mean, we'd seen it earlier in the year. (laughs) Like I mentioned to you, we had seen it with Peyton Manning earlier in the season, and it was like, this is happening instantly. We were thinking to ourselves at the time, just don't let them score a touchdown. Let's just get to overtime. Yes. Mason Crosby kicks his fifth field goal (sighs) of the game to tie it. Uh, Seahawks kneel it out, head to overtime, win the coin toss, and march down the field just by taking over at their own 13 uh, a 35 yard completion from Wilson to Doug Baldwin on third and seven and then from the Green Bay 35 Jermaine Curse, who previously in that game had been targeted like six times and not caught any of them I think I don't know if target data is on here on this pro football reference box score that I'm looking at Oh, yes, it is. Had been targeted, yes, five times, had not caught a pass, and I think maybe all four of the interceptions had been thrown in this direction. I'm pretty sure all four of them. The Seahawks went to the Super Bowl with Russell Wilson throwing four interceptions, and Pete Carroll is obsessed with avoiding turnovers. I I don't get it, guys. Uh, Catches the 35-yard touchdown pass, and the Seahawks head back to the Super Bowl. Man. It's just uh, <clears throat> both of these years having these games to go to the Super Bowl, having the last game in Seattle being two of the most memorable games that we've ever seen. You know, this is the most memorable comeback, obviously, in Seahawks history that we're seeing. And then the previous year having the most iconic play in Seahawks history. But curse catching that ball. Dude, most iconic tur- play in Seattle sports history, perhaps. Turning and throwing it into the Hawks nest. Throwing the ball in the hawk's nest, it's just like, all right. You know, we're watching it from pretty far away, Wait, but it's it, like... I, it was in the other end zone, wasn't it? It wasn't in the hawk's no, nest, was it? it was not. It was in the hawk's nest. It, <clears throat> it was opposite to me, <clears throat> to our seats. And he catches it, and you're like, I guess there was no doubt that he caught that ball. Because <laughs> he just turned and threw it into the crowd. So <laughs> that better be a clean catch. No, it was uh, not. It, I'm looking at the replay right now. That's not at the hawk's nest. You can see the hawk's nest on the opposite end in the background. No. Yeah, I'm looking at the video. Are you are you, you accusing this of being a uh, uh, what's the a Mandela effect situation? <laughs> Let me see this. Hold on. I watched this game. I I, I maybe. <laughs> <laughs> You hypothetically attended this game. No, it 100% was into the closed end of the field. I'm looking at multiple angles of it. <laughs> I like we've just bogged down the podcast that you can be convinced. I'm, just, I'm just so baffled. Wait, I sit on the open end of the field? No, you sit on the closed end of the field. You don't. That was right in now. front of me? 
I remember I this play distinctly happening at the opposite end of the field. I mean, the, the touchdown to tie was there to go ahead in regulation was at the other end of the field. So maybe that's what you're remembering. I don't, I don't I'm going to text Chris about this and just ask him which side it happened on. <clears throat> I'm very curious to see what he says about this. <laughs> wow. I remember this just – it's I guess it's strange how memories can do that. But like when I picture this play, seeing this play live in, in my head, it is to the opposite side of the stadium, not in front of us. So the Seahawks went on to face New England in the Patriots' sixth of nine Super Bowl appearances in the Brady-Belichick era. <sighs> but in some ways, this wasn't the <clears throat> Patriots that we think of now, because they yeah. hadn't won a championship in a decade. The Seahawks were the much more recent champions. They had lost their previous two Super Bowl appearances to the Giants in both 2007 and 2011. The game was tied at 7-7 and 14-14 each in the second quarter, and the latter was the halftime score after a Chris Matthews touchdown. Chris Matthews, so good. Had four catches on 109 yards on for 109 yards on five targets after never previously having <laughs> caught a pass, filling the void left by Paul Richardson's ACL tear uh, during his rookie season in the win over Carolina in the playoffs. <clears throat> The Seahawks opened up a 10-point lead after the third quarter with the Doug Baldwin touchdown on his only catch of the game, but the Patriots pulled within three with a touchdown with 7.55 left and then took the lead on a Julian Edelman touchdown with, fittingly, 2.06 left. The Seahawks drove quickly with a 31-yard pass to Marshawn Lynch and a 33-yard pass to Jermaine Curse. Coming up big yet again, hashtag Curse Crew, down to the five-yard line. Not just a a pass to Jermaine Curse. Jermaine Curse, like an incredible catch. I mean, if the Seahawks end up winning this game, this is one of the plays that we look at as sure. like <sighs> him go- falling to the ground, reaching out, pulling it off the ground, and coming up with the catch. Should we talk about it? So, we were watching this at our cousin Chris, Chris's house, uh, a group of us. And I mean, it was a weird <clears throat> boy because it's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to win the Super Bowl again. Yeah. Like, Everyone's thinking this. Uh, Marshawn runs for four yards on first and goal, followed by Belichick inexplicably letting the clock run, even though they, Peter should have been calling a timeout to try to preserve time to get the ball back and inevitably score after the Seahawks did. So if they call timeout, what what is what what changes about the Seahawks thinking? Anything? Yeah, I think they're much more likely to run because so I mean the one thing that happened here is. <clears throat> I, okay, let's, I mean, now we're into it. It's second and goal with the one. 26 seconds left, as, or like a little bit more than that as they actually run the play. So in that situation, the Seahawks have one timeout left. They want to pass the ball on second down so that they save the timeout for third down. You've got either the run or pass option there, and then fourth down, obviously, you can do whatever. So that is the one thing Belichick accomplished by not taking a timeout, is that he made it more likely the Seahawks would pass on second down. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Marshawn Lynch's there's Seahawks success rate on plays at the goal line. Uh, if we go 2012 through 2014 before this play, according to Pro Football Reference, the Seahawks had run it 28 times with Marshawn Lynch in those situations, scoring 12 touchdowns, that's 43%. With two fumbles by Lynch, including in the playoffs at Washington, is uh, 
as Ben Baldwin pointed out to us as we were talking about the uh, that play that we misidentified last week, as well as that play in the 2013 NFC Championship game where the fumble was attributed to Wilson, which is why we called it a sneak, but it was actually just a botched handoff between him and Marshawn. So they'd thrown the ball 13 times at the one or the two and goal to go, and had scored five of those 38%. So it's well within the margin of error there, which was actually more likely to result in the touchdown, a run with Marshawn or a pass. I mean, obviously from the one, it's probably a little more likely to score with a run than a pass. But this idea that like, oh, if they had run, they definitely would have scored a touchdown. It is complete hindsight. What real Seahawks fans, like the thinking Seahawks fan will tell you, is the real mistake was not that they passed. It was that they called like a straight pass and a relatively risky pass that required, I think, Curse to come up with a block. Also, they were targeting Ricardo Lockett. Ricardo Lockett! Who's like basically a career special teamer. Who, you know, sadly, his career cut short by injury the next season, unfortunately. But uh, that was the time to rule Russell Wilson out and give him a run-pass option. Like, it's Russell Wilson. He's going to make the right decision. You're just not going to weigh in on this at all, or are you I just, texting it, Chris? How long is this text? <laughs> I'm not texting Chris, no. Uh, I, I'm just a little haunted by it. we got to confront our fears here. Especially because dumbasses on Twitter still are like, literally anytime everyone anyone makes the the balls at the one yard line metaphor. Like I remember this being tweeted about Melo getting traded to wherever he was going to get traded, the Rockets, I guess, in the summer of 2017. Uh huh. And they were like, the, the balls at the one or whatever. We just need to get it over the line. Yeah, the balls at the one on this deal, and then like eight million Seahawks Super Bowl 49 tweets. Mm. And they uh, should have run it with Marshawn tweets. Like, we've got to confront this. I think that they were good. People haven't thought about it. It, it was just an improbable thing happened. You know? Yeah. Like, I don't remember. I'm sure this must have happened at some point. Russ throwing picks that close to the goal line. I mean, it hadn't happened on any of the other passes they'd thrown that close between 2012 and 14. Sure, and obviously it's a very unlikely thing to happen, but I think Pete correctly remembered some of these fumbles that had happened with Marshawn at the goal line. You know, you obviously still trust him. Like, I don't think either way we would have been happy with the decision, but having the pass with the eventual chance of running on third down and then whatever on fourth down was the right way to approach it. Yeah, and I mean, that's the other thing, though, is... The timing aspect is what Seahawks defenders apparently needed to be told about. They needed to have this conversation because this uh, this bizarre idea that that and, and possibly Marshawn himself, this bizarre idea that the Seahawks passed it because they wanted Russ to be the MVP of the game and not Marshawn Lynch. It's it's just such fucking horseshit that you would even be thinking about that if you are Pete Carroll, Daryl Bevel, whomever is making these decisions. All you're thinking about is getting that ball in the end zone however you can do it. There's Correct. no part of you that's just like going through the steps of who becomes the MVP once once that happens. Like that is it's just it is not part of the decision making process. And it's an it's a ludicrous argument to even consider. 
But like you're just you're trying to get that ball into the end zone no matter what. And I the the only I think they were probably very successful in quick passing. You know, we've seen a lot of really successful quick passing. And for whatever reason, the Patriots just read it correctly. And the fact that the ball was going to Ricardo Lockett still is, you know, like even if it gets there, does Ricardo Lockett make that catch? We don't know. If it was a quick pass, I'm sure we would have preferred it have gone to somebody like Doug Baldwin. Uh, which, you know, you mentioned Doug Baldwin only having one catch in the Super Bowl. It's like, that's kind of shocking. But it, it was still, the, the process was correct. Yeah. And you just can't judge things based upon the outcomes because you don't know. There's there's a window of outcomes for everything you do. And if Marshawn Lynch gets a handoff and he fumbles the ball, we're haunted in the same way that we're haunted right now about this interception. So, uh, I don't know. Probably haunted just, in a slightly different way, actually, but yes. It's the NFL will always trend to the most conservative outcome. And <clears throat> Pete Carroll has been an extremely conservative coach basically ever since this, you know, and especially for quite a few of the recent years, managed to not do the most thing in the situation because you, you never, you're never getting if he hands the ball off and Marshawn doesn't get in or whatever, incomplete pass, third down or something, they don't score some other way. He's not faulted in the same way because the way that the NFL works is that you will always, always be rewarded by doing the most conservative thing. Didn't do that. <sighs> Yo, we lost you for like most of that. Did you? Yes. I cut out? Yes. Hold on a second. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> I didn't. I'm, not, I'm just not just making this up. You're just trying to give, not give me the MVP. <laughs> the thing is, the NFL, the NFL will always trend to the most conservative outcome more than it will the most likely to increase your chances of victory outcome. And in that moment, you you laid it out as, like, the most likely chances of victory weren't necessarily passing. But I think on that individual play, but I think score, if you... Like the most likely chances of scoring on the next play weren't necessarily passing. Weren't necessarily passing, but I think if you look at the entire series of plays, their chances of winning were higher based upon passing. Yeah. But I, I think it's more hindsight bias than it is necessarily conservatives. I think that, yeah, if they had given the ball to Marshawn if they three hit, and if they three hit times, Marshawn fumble, it is not with, like, it's is on the player. That's an execution issue. And for some reason, that's different than an interception. But Why? if Marshawn runs into the line three times and doesn't score, then everyone says, well, why didn't you pass? Because it's whatever doesn't work, the other way automatically would well, have been bad. Well, they couldn't have run into the line three times. I'm saying hypothetically, okay? I, I Just take – if Belichick calls the timeout there and they run it into the line three times, like whatever uh, they don't score, you're going to get criticized. I don't think it would have been the same because it wouldn't have divided the offense and the defense in the way that this play actually ultimately did. 
But I think he still would have gotten criticized. I don't think it's just a conservatism issue. It's it's a combination of both. But the conservatism is part of this conversation. The NFL considers the default play to be a running play forever. Yeah. I mean, and look, running plays are generally quite successful in short yardage. Like, that's the one situation where you should run a lot. But, but when everybody knows what's coming, like, the, there's just so much playbook where that's that's where it comes down to. Look, we're always going to say roll Russell Wilson out, but that's what they should have fucking done. Like, <laughs> if we want to talk about hindsight, you pass the ball and you give Russ the chance to create. Yeah. Like, let hitting me, the let, ball off a into a line of... Patriots who know what's coming wouldn't have been the right decision. And probably this quick pass to Ricardo Lockett wasn't the right decision either. But giving Russ the chance to make something with his legs and run the ball in or find an, uh, there's going to be somebody open if he's rolling out or he runs it in. One of those two outcomes is so likely it could have taken longer. And I'm sure they were considering the clock and maybe that was part of it. I mean, but, but with 26, 26 seconds in a timeout, that's not that big of a deal. It's only a big deal if he gets tackled inbounds, but he's Russell Wilson. He, he's never gotten tackled inbounds in his career. <laughs> I think there might have been one time. Oh. <laughs> Maybe it was What's Doug that Holden you say? Sacks are tackle, getting tackled inbounds? What's that? <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about another Seattle football team that had some, uh, some frustrating losses in Arizona, but not nearly as important. Uh, Chris Peterson, his first year as head coach of UW, debuted in a 17-16 win at Hawaii with Jeff Lindquist at quarterback in place oh, of the man. suspended oh. Siler Miles. Brutal. Suspended for an, an incident after the Super Bowl 2013 where... Yes. He was pro-Broncos. Yeah, it was from, <laughs> he was from Colorado. Uh, assaulted Seahawks fans along with teammate DeMaurier Stringfellow who transferred afterwards and eventually ended up on the Seahawks practice squad. The Seahawks then came home, and with Miles at QB, escaped to Vernon Adams the third, 59-52, in a thrilling Week 2 match against Eastern Washington, and finished non-conference play 4-0 before losing their Pac-12 opener to number 16 Stanford at 20-13, a game I don't really have any memory of. We lost to Stanford at home 20-13? Yeah. Or there? Huh. That was at home, because the year before was on the road. Oh, I didn't, I didn't go, because... Uh... <laughs> Babyer fantasy genius. What? <laughs> so I was at a doctor's appointment. I left halfway through that Eastern game to go to a doctor's appointment, um, and I was listening to it on the radio. And it's like this game is fucking wild. First off, I was convinced that Vernon Adams was the second coming of Russell Wilson, and may may still be to this day. I still uh, don't get how it didn't work in Oregon. The yeah, that was the scariest thing that ever happened was Vernon Adams transferring to Oregon. But well, and that team had what's his name on it also, ah, Rams wide receiver. Oh, Cooper Cup, yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there was Cooper Cup and Vernon Adams. Like that was a it was a good Eastern team. It wasn't as oh, embarrassing yeah. in hindsight for for the Huskies defense to be able to do nothing against them. I mean, I don't know. But, if it was a 52 I don't know, I don't know that they scored 52 points every week against FCS opponents. So it was still a lot, okay. but also partially cuz the Huskies offense was constantly scoring in that game as well. Yes. Uh but 
so I was driving to a doctor's appointment in like Kirkland or something, listening to that game on the radio and just being like, Jesus Christ, we're going to lose to Eastern. It's finally happening. Uh, and that was the uh, game that. with a 57-yard Shaq Thompson touchdown run. That's what I was going to say. Is they started. We were pretty pissed about this that year, too. <clears throat> they started moving their best defensive player to offense and even just kind of had him running up the middle at some point. Maybe we'll get to that later on in this. But the Stanford I game... I we're going to get that specific. Also, Kendrick Bourne, who played in the NFL, is, or is in the NFL with the 49ers, still, wow. still with the 49ers? Not, still with the 49ers, isn't he... He was out there catching crucial passes this year. Yeah. Kendrick Bourne was on went to Eastern. Yeah. Wow. That, that, that was, was a, it was a good, good offense, man. Uh, but yeah, so pro- Mar- Marco was born on I don't on Friday, and that Stanford game happened on Saturday, uh-huh. and so I don't even know if you went to it. I definitely didn't go. I'm sure I went to it. Would I, not go? I feel like you might have been gone for some reason. Uh, I guess that's possible, but I don't. I don't remember missing it. Anyways, let's see. Let's see if we can get Cooper Cup uh, stats here. Uh, eight catches for 145 yards and three touchdowns. Really ended up through seven touchdowns in that game in 475 yards. Kendrick Bourne had eight catches for 114 yards and one touchdown. So, oh my God, those are that, legit that NFL terrible. receivers roasting the Seahawks NFL receivers. Okay, uh, then the Seahawks. That was uh, the start of the Seahawks Huskies. Huskies, I should say, losing all five conference games versus ranked opponents. They lost at number nine Oregon, home to number fourteen ASU and number eighteen UCLA, and then at number seventeen Arizona after a late fumble while they were attempting to run out the clock. And the Wildcats ended up scoring after that fumble. We were we were a little unconvinced. I think we, we still generally believed in Coach Pete, but that was the one where it was like, they could have taken a knee time-wise. I, I remember talking about this and didn't take a knee and, and chose to run the ball, ended up fumbling and lose the game because of it. That's uh, <laughs> Another team found a worse way to lose in 2014. Exactly. But technically, this was technically in 2015. Yes, but, but this was up there with one of the worst ways to lose. But the, the Huskies did go 4-0 and against unranked Pac-12 opponents, easily beating Oregon State and Wazoo to finish the season 8-5. and They then lost, went back to Arizona and lost the Cactus Bowl 30-22 to to an Oklahoma State team with Mason Rudolph at quarterback. I remember that being a pretty good Oklahoma State team, too. Utah men's basketball stayed in its rut. Well, no, rough... no, we can't leave. I mean, this was the beginning of the Chris Peterson era. I think we were still we believed in Coach Pete. The decision to play Shaq Thompson at running back was, in hindsight, a very baffling decision, uh, considering well, that he's to now play him at running back, but just to not play him on defense. Like if you were going to do a Miles Jack situation, like Miles Jack kept playing linebacker. Yeah, he just played running back too. This was a top... Where did he go? He went in the top 10 in the draft? Or was he in the top 15? This was a, a top... 15 fi- somewhere. A top 20 first-round NFL draft pick as a linebacker that the Huskies... Uh, 25, stopped, I guess. 25, really? It's freaking steal. Um, but <laughs> that the Huskies saw fit to move to running back 
which in hindsight, think about how that sounds. They moved I mean, him to a running back. He did run for 174 yards at Colorado. He had some good games, but he wasn't just a change of pace running back, like get him get him some carries. It'll be exciting. This wasn't Charles Woodson as a receiver. This was like he was the Huskies running back for periods. Yeah. And that is it was a horrible misuse of Shaq Thompson and his abilities. I think you're a little more negative on this than you need to be. Shaq Thompson averaged 7.5 yards per carry, man. He was a pretty damn good running back. Oh, boy. But they did have, like, multiple running backs who played in the NFL, LeVon Coleman and Dwayne Washington. Yeah, that's. I just feel like you're not understanding this. He was a running back. You get him some carries. That was that's, also that's, the year where, that's fun. That's exciting. Like That was also the year where John Ross played at defensive back at the end of the year. He started at defensive back, I'm pretty sure, in the, the bowl game. Wow, so two first-round picks this season started on the opposite side of the ball. It was a weird season. This is also Marcus Peters getting kicked off the team mid-year, right? It was that that same year. It wasn't mid-year. It was like after the Eastern game. He had he got like a crucial penalty in that Eastern game. He did, yes. That is correct. Whew. And I think a lot of first-round picks doing doing odd things that year. That, so this in, in Chris Peterson's he was first he was not kicked off the team until November. He was ah. suspended a game for a sideline tantrum after that penalty against uh, Eastern, I believe. It was it was a transition year, is what I'm saying for Chris Peterson. I mean, obviously yeah. by the next year he had settled in. He he'd gotten his OKGs. He'd settled into the program, but I think he was still figuring out how to use these players for a season. That's fair. All right, UW men's basketball stayed stuck in the rut. Another rough non-conference with an early home loss to UC Irvine in seven-foot, five- or six Mamadou Njai in the yep. second game of the season, and a pair of losses at the 2K Classic at Madison Square Garden that I attended, uh, losing badly to Indiana and then also to, I believe, Boston College. They lost at number 24, San Diego State, and at home to number 10, UConn, finishing the season 8-5. and five. Again, rallied for a respectable Pac-12 performance. They finished 9-9 nine and nine in conference play, but lost their Pac-12 tournament opener 67-61 to Utah and did not play in the postseason. Ugh. The Sounders, with maybe the best team in franchise history, even though it didn't win the MLS Cup, wow. uh, winning the U.S. Open Cup in the Supporters' Shield in 2014, they played all the preliminary games of the U.S. Open Cup at Starfire, beating San Jose on penalties and Portland 3-1 in extra time before crushing Chicago 6-0 in the semis. They then won the final 3-1 at Philadelphia again in extra time. Uh, the Sounders beat the Galaxy 2-0 in the regular season finale after coming up with a 2-2 draw the previous week down in Carson against the Galaxy to clinch the first and still only supporters' shield in franchise history behind the dominant attack of Obafemi Martins, who had 17 goals, and Clint Dempsey, who had 15, plus 9 from Lamar Nagel. Wow. Good for Lamar Nagel. Lamar Nagel. But, I mean, this was, like, the best one-two combination in Sounders history. Man, I, I kind of kind of forgot Martins. Was this his... He played a few more years with the team after this, right? Yes. Or, or at least one more season. That was a pretty dominant attack. Yeah. Uh, in the first round... The offense was not necessarily there for the Sounders, but uh, they got a win over Dallas on the road goal tiebreaker 
before because they they drew one one on the roads and then drew nil no at home before losing to the galaxy on the same tiebreaker in the West final, giving up the tying goal in the 54th minute after going up 2-0 in the first half of the home leg. Ugh. This also, by the way, notably, 2014, was one of the World Cups we paid most attention to. It was the Men in Blazers World Cup. Uh, was it? 2014? Yeah. <clears throat> was the Men in Blazers World Cup? It was Brazil. Was Italy in this World Cup? Uh, I believe Italy was in this World Cup. It was 18 and... that Italy didn't go. They yes, flamed out in the 18... first round of the, this one. Uh, 14 was the year that uh, there was the, the biting incident with uh, uh, Chiellini and Suarez. Uh, and the U.S. like managed to escape and advance to the knockout stages of this one, right? Correct, and then they had the game where they lost to Belgium despite Tim Howard <clears throat> up with like 24 saves. Yeah, that and Belgium. Spectacular that was an excellent Belgium team. Yeah, I believe. Uh, uh, who got the winning goal on that one? It wasn't Lukaku. It was Lukaku. Yeah. Um, the uh, that was <clears throat> really a disgrace. The the biting incident happening for Italy. Italy just kind of in the World Cup is usually when they are uh, uh, eligible. Just kind of around stuff. Stuff is happening. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. In that World that Cup. Is undoubtedly true. But I remember this being a fun... Where Who is the host country? Brazil. Oh, it was in Brazil. Who then that year in the semis uh, gave up, what, like six goals to eight goals or whatever? To oh, yeah. They got destroyed. Yeah, Lukaku in the 105th minute with the winner, or the second goal. I guess De Bruyne actually gave them the lead. Uh, the U.S. didn't pull one back through Julian Green until the 107th minute shortly uh, Julian after. Julian Green. So th- this was the final that was Argentina, Germany, and then Germany ended up winning. Correct. Yeah, this was one of the World Cup. This is a good World Cup, actually. 7-1 uh, was that, that Germany-Brazil score. <laughs> oh, man. Uh... Yeah, this was a fun summer for soccer. The Seattle Storm playoff streak was snapped at 10 in 2014. They started the season hoping to contend after trading a first-round pick to add Crystal Langhorn as a replacement for the retired Tina Thompson with Subert back on the court for the again the campaign 1-5 and, and were 9-13 in, in mid-July when the bottom fell out with a seven-game losing streak. They finished 12-22, and tied for the worst record in the WNBA with the Tulsa Shock. It was a better summer for the Seattle Mariners, who just missed the playoffs. They led the AL, giving up 3.42 runs per game. Not sure if that's a good thing or not, just missing the playoffs. (laughs) By Mariners' standards, that's that's a celebration. (laughs) Uh, Felix had another dominant season. Hishashi, Iwakuma, Chris Young, and Ronis Elias. Uh, all under four ERA, and then an excellent bullpen, and they got just enough offense from newcomer Robinson Cano and Kyle Seeger. One of the season's final day, one game back of the Oakland A's for the new second wild card spot, but Oakland beat Texas four nothing to clinch the spot and eliminate the Mariners. Oh, I think we were paying attention to this. I think we were really there monitoring a, baseball closely for that last month or so. There was a Seahawks game going on at the same time. I remember going back and forth. That last like that. one, yeah, we were really, we were. That was, I think, 2014 was the most in that we've been on baseball. So I guess it was a good year by Mariner standards. Yeah, uh, 16, <laughs> we were pretty in. 
Were we pretty in at 16? I don't, they all run together. 16 was the year they got eliminated on the Saturday night before the final day of the season. Wow. And I remember Man, the Mariners sure game. have been close to making the playoffs. <laughs> as soon as they expanded it to like eight well cards, they got, they got competitive. But I remember listening to that game driving back from Kevin Durant's first preseason game with the Warriors in Vancouver. Oh, wow. Uh, you're really just name-dropping all the arenas you've been to on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's remember some arenas. <laughs> like all of us would like to have been to Vancouver. I'm sure you probably ate some excellent food there too. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I didn't get dumplings though, so in hindsight, it was a missed opportunity to get some Tim Hortons. Uh, 2014 saw the Blazers win a playoff series. There we go. They added Robin Lopez via trade and strengthened the bench with Mo Williams, improving dramatically on both ends of the court moving to second in offensive rating and league average on defense, and by 21 total wins, earning the fifth seed in the Western Conference, as Damian Lillard joined LaMarcus Aldridge as All-Stars. The Blazers won the first two games of their first-round matchup in Houston, then split in Portland, and came back home to win the series on Damian Lillard's walk-off three in Game 6. This was the coolest walk-off until Damian Lillard's other coolest walk-off. I mean, it's interesting because, uh, like, obviously that one holds more personal significance to us. The Houston one, though, in some ways because it had been so long since the Blazers won a playoff series, and also because it was Game 6 and they were going to have to go to Houston for Game 7, I th- and they were down. Like, the Paul George shot, they were tied. So you add those factors, I think it's on, a, like, a non-emotional level, it was a bigger shot. Do you think it's just to us in Seattle that the the beating the Thunder shot was a bigger shot, though. Like, I feel like that's remembered as one of the great moments in Blazers history. It is. I mean, also the fact that they eventually did get to the conference finals. But there's also a recency element to it. I mean, they're both remembered quite fondly in Portland. Uh, my memory of this series, I, I don't know how much we want to step on. No, I guess this doesn't step on anything. Uh, <laughs> during... what, what are you going to step on? <laughs> Well, I have a story about Silicon Valley that is tangentially connected uh, to this. Okay. Uh, games three and four of the series, we were in Austin at our friend Nick's wedding. Do you recall that? Yeah. No, I want. Or I game want, three, I'm game ready, four. We ready to talk about? I feel like a lot happened in our personal lives in 2014. Yeah, I suppose so. Oh, that's right. I had forgotten the Hawaii getting trip. Jobs, traveling, going to Hawaii, having children. I did all the things in 2014. You really did. Uh, I guess only Game 3. Technically, we flew back just in time for Game 4 of that series. But, uh, yeah, we flew into Austin on a Thursday night, went to some bar and drank Shiner on the patio. We went to the, uh, oh, my God, <sighs> purple, uh, well, I can't remember. I I became incredibly ill. <laughs> yeah. But then we went to Veracruz Tacos. Yeah. And we got time. to Veracruz Tacos. And then brought the when went back went to the bar with the tacos. Did we? And, yeah, I'm pretty sure we got those first, and then went to the bar with the tacos. And I like couldn't even eat them. I was getting so sick. It was the what are the big lights called in Austin? You know, are the towers that you climb up? I don't know. I, They're in dazed and confused. Um, it's where they go to have the party. Yeah, they're called like the moon towers. I did not. I did not see that into my uh, half-ass internet research on on uh, the moonlight computers. towers. 
I can't remember what that bar is called. Anyway, it was a gr- it was the best bar in Austin. I fucking loved it. Uh, it was a great bar, like right on the east side of Austin, before Rainy Street became, Street became a thing. Um, and you know, Rainy Street now is like the like it's like the Ballard or whatever of Austin. Um, but this was like the the east side was the coolest part of Austin at the time. There was this bar that was central there. It's called like the Purple Something, and it was awesome. And you, they had massive back patio, and you're just like, yeah. every day in Austin is great to be outside. So at least when I've been there, <laughs> having only been I mean, there in March and this trip in June, um, April. No, this was April. Or, or in April, yeah. I've, I've only been I've, there. In early I've spring. been to Texas in late May. It was not that great to be outside in Texas in late May. Uh, so Friday we went to Torchy's Tacos. Mm-hmm. Hung out with Kirk Goldsberry. With yeah, Dennis we went with Kirk Goldsberry. Uh, Saturday we went to uh wait what's the what's the barbecue place we went to? We went to um Salt oh Lake. my god yeah Salt Salt Lake the, the the pilgrimage to the greatest barbecue on earth possibly. Uh, not the best barbecue I've had. I I can't even give an objective opinion about it because I was so ill. That's true. You were still you were still struggling. That was the day of the wedding. Um, that was the day of the wedding. Yeah, I think that was. The, the, I don't even remember which day I was. Oh, and, and that morning we woke up and the Donald Sterling news had broken. Yes. So that was a, a weird thing hanging over the uh, that entire day. Then Sunday we went and ate breakfast tacos with your friend in Austin. Oh yeah, with Chase Clancy. <laughs> and then went to a bar with Kirk and his NBA Nerd Night group to watch the playoffs and drink Lone Stars. God, that was awesome. I think I was feeling a little bit better by the time we went to that bar. Um, But yeah, the the place that we went to with Chase also was awesome, too. We had like like 40 different flavors of margaritas. Uh, God, Austin's the best. I'm so upset that I didn't get to go to Austin this year. I mean, number one, I want to go anywhere, but I really want to go to Austin (laughs) Number one, I want to go anywhere. Ah, oh, fucking anyway. bullshit! We didn't get to go to Austin. My body mm. needs tacos. <laughs> Sadly, unavailable here in Seattle. Um, but I remember you on the flight home were reading some magazine that had Silicon Valley stars on the cover, and that was the first time I remember like <laughs> Entertainment really Weekly. I'm guessing being probably really being aware of Silicon Valley, which we're going to talk about in a second here. Uh, that whole trip was like. I don't know that time period. So I just interviewed for a new job uh, and was anticipating that I would get it. I interviewed when we were in Hawaii because we went to Hawaii in March, I guess early April. Yeah, because I celebrated my birthday there. And you recorded the first ever Zach Lowe podcast, the first ever Lowe post. Number three. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, it's the first ever Lowe post, if anybody asks. Uh, It was the Kemba Walker UConn team, right? Where. Kemba led UConn to the championship. It was not the Kemba Walker UConn team. Kemba Walker was long in the NBA by that who was the who was, was the Shabazz Napier. Oh, Shabazz. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's like I knew that there was a UConn player who like, put the team on their back. And we were in so Hawaii, was, and that game happened at like 1 p.m. or whatever. Very odd. I was the only one who stayed in the room and watched it. You guys uh, went to the beach. Uh, yeah, we made the right decision. <laughs> you stayed inside and watched college basketball. Think about that. I mean, it was a great view still. <laughs> oh, I want to be in Hawaii right now. <laughs> and 
just anywhere. <laughs> Did you go to Vegas that year too? Uh, probably. Oh, we definitely did go to Vegas. That year, that was the year I went down below. I went before I went to summer league. Maybe it was the next year that we went with Chris, and I stayed out with him until like seven in the morning when we first played craps. I think that was 2015. Sounds right. Okay, we'll reminisce about that next year. Uh, Okay. So we went to Hawaii for like nine days. I interviewed for a new job in Hawaii, and then did like an in-person interview. Uh, right before we went to Austin and then went to Austin and then eventually was like offered the job. So that transitions to the music that came out this year. Cause it was like, all of a sudden I'm at this place that's working with these artists in the indie rock realm who are putting out, I remember Kurt Goldsbury being like, you might be a good person to know soon or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, Hey, that's kind of a shitty thing to say. Um, because <laughs> it's like you can just actually know me now whether i'm connected to explosions in the sky or whatever but like the being being going to there in that moment for indie rock it was coming off like arcade fire and bon Iver both winning grammys for best record of the year and then future islands who had just the the letterman moment had happened that spring and it was like Every, everything was happening for Future Islands. They they went from being, you know, relatively small touring band to being massive band, basically overnight because of this Letterman performance uh, and performing the song Seasons. And it's like, that song to me is the defining song of all of 2014. Interesting. I So I think what stands out about 2014 is like, if you think of the biggest artists of the 2010s, almost none of them put out albums in 2014. <laughs> like, all of them did in 2013 when we were talking. Mm-hmm. But, like, there was no Jay-Z, there was no Drake, there was no Rihanna, there was no Beyonce. Uh, Kendrick didn't put out an album, although he did have perhaps this, one of the songs of the year, mm-hmm. because the single I came out ahead of his album in 2015. Yes, but, which was never, like, the real version was never, the original single version was never on. To Pimp a Butterfly. <clears throat> mm. It was a, a remix version that was on Pimp a Butterfly. Gotcha. So, yeah, so I definitely think that kind of made room for, like, this different group to, uh, you know, rise up. Well, the other artists, when we were driving around in Austin, the the two songs, because we were listening to just whatever pop radio, was Happy by Pharrell from the Minions movie. See, I connected Pharrell happy to the 2014 All-Star game I attended in New Orleans, where it felt like that was the Another song. Another arena you've been to. It's true. Um, it's true. <laughs> uh, so it was that, and then the song Fancy by Iggy Azalea. Oh. Wow. So I'm telling you, we were driving around that. in that rental car in the middle of fucking driving out to nowhere, Texas, and those two tracks were playing every six songs. It was it was too early to really be able to connect via Bluetooth to this to the stereo, I guess. I wish wish we would have. Oh, and there was oh my god, what was that other song? Just the way you are. <clears throat> I mean, that's a 2013 song, but it may still have been okay, well, in 2014. It's yeah. on the playlist. I I remember hearing those three repeatedly while we were. <laughs> driving around in driving out to Salt Lake in Texas. Cause it's like an hour outside of town. 
Well, no, but we were staying pretty close. It was only like a 15 to 20 minute drive from the hotel where we were staying. To Salt Lake? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we were driving to the hotel that was like an hour outside of town. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, yes. <clears throat> uh, besides Future Islands, I would say also a big year for the war on drugs. Absolutely. That that was the year that the war on drugs became like, you know, they, they moved out of like band that was affiliated with Kurt Vile and became much bigger than Kurt Vile on their own. Uh, I remember reading uh, an interview where um, War on Drugs dude, Johnny something. Um, (laughs) uh, It was like a, a long piece where he was talking about like coping with depression and how he was like using colors to define the art after that. And I was like, this is I was like, this is fucking cool, this. And then also getting to work with St. Vincent that year, where St. Vincent had kind of like yeah. the, the breakout for St. Vincent. She was already cool, but like <clears throat> uh, her working with Perfume Genius in that year, there was like records that were extremely exciting happening all around me all of a sudden, where it was like, you know, I'm not actually connected to these artists really in any sort of like close or tangible way, but it was like all of a sudden on the team of these like huge indie rock artists. And it was very different from where I was before. I also feel like, was there a story about Carrie Brownstein, like calling and you answering or something like that? Am I recalling that correctly? <laughs> uh, Annie Clark and Carrie Brownstein would call often because uh, the owner of the company at the time managed Slater Kinney and Slater Kinney was in the process of coming back. Uh, so he managed both Slater Kinney and St. Vincent. Uh, and so they would call often. There was no real story, but it was just like, sometimes you'd answer the phone. You'd be like, wow, that is a very famous person. <laughs> and Carrie, <laughs> Carrie Brownstein had become much more famous than, you know, cause this was on the heels, like Portlandia was huge at the time. Nice. And she was like, Hey, this is Carrie for botch. And you're just like sending you through. (laughs) You don't need to. Most people, you're just like, and what is it regarding or whatever? (laughs) Um, That was not something that you were doing with Annie or Carrie. Uh, Or sometimes I think Carrie and Lowell was probably 2015. um, Yes. But you get the occasional like, hey, this is Sufjan. And you're just like, hold on a second. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, we can talk. We can talk about hanging backstage with Sufjan next year. Oh man! Oh, week. oh yeah, that was really cool. Really cool stuff. Being in the, <laughs> in the biz <laughs> and getting to awkwardly be around Sufjan Stevens. <laughs> well, some of us got to be even more awkward because we weren't in the biz. We were just there. <laughs> just a guy who was there. <laughs> <laughs> the brother of the guy who's there. <laughs> the, uh, the brother of the guy who happens to know Sufjan's agent. Oh, oh man. Uh, anything else you want to highlight like, musically from 2014? Uh, the Salad Days record by Mac DeMarco. Whereas, like, Mac DeMarco was already... He, he wasn't actually that huge. And Mac DeMarco, in hindsight, you might not know this, but he is the voice of a generation. Where Which the, generation? It's just a generation. Okay. I, I, it's a micro-generation. No, th- there are so many kids. Mac DeMarco's legit one of the most influential artists of the last 10 years <clears throat> and there are so many kids who are like he's number one of who has influenced them to make music um, and it's something that like if you're from the outside you might not even recognize but 
this record in particular, Salad Days. Uh, I went to the show at Chop Suey after it came out, and it was like, he could do no wrong on that record. The whole thing was perfect. He was like crowd surfing. He was like playing the guitar, guitar behind his head. It was, it was like ridiculous. He should have never been playing a venue that size at that point. Like Mac and Marco was way too big for that. And it was, it was an awesome experience. Um, so that, that to me was like, this was the, it was the, not the Mac DeMarco moment. Cause again, Mac DeMarco, now the influence is outsized with the generation that came after it. But this is the music that I think was really influencing them. And like when most people were discovering it. Uh, this was the first year we did a top 10. Do we want to go over that? <laughs> uh, sure. Quickly. <laughs> Maybe some highlights. Uh, my number one song was Love Me Harder by Ariana Grande in the weekend. <laughs> I don't even know the song. Love Me Harder yes, by do. Ariana Grande in the weekend. It's a huge song. It's, you do. <clears throat> they played it was on this SNL the year we together. went to Bumbershoot and saw the weekend? I don't think so. But I can't rule that out for certain. Uh, let's see. I also had I in there in the uh, top five. Oh, stay with me. That was a big, big Sam Smith moment. Oh wow, this was a big Sam Smith moment. You uh, had seasons number one, of course. Under the pressure, number two. God, that song's uh, still so good. Hollywood by Tobias Jesso Jr. Number three. Wow. <laughs> snapshot of 2014. <laughs> the Tobias Jesso Jr. moment never really happened. But if you would have asked me in 2014 who today would be the biggest artist from that list, I would have been like, oh, definitely Tobias Jesso Jr. We also didn't talk about Caribou that you have in your uh, top ten. Oh, man, can't do without hearing that song for the first time ever. It was, and, you know, he had been recording music for quite a long time at that point. Um, but I think I was looking at Pitchfork because it was 2014 and the, the future islands, it was like, there was a headline that was like Letterman trying to make future islands performance a thing. It was like the headline. And then that same day there was like the track section and can't do without by caribou came out and just turning on for the first time being like, Oh, I can't believe this wasn't in your top ten for that year. The track's incredible. I am surprised. I think, well, I, I know that I, I, in my preliminary list of 2020 consideration, there's a Caribou song from the album they put out this year. Wow. I can, I can reveal that. You're already making 2020 lists? We might. We haven't done our like top five. I like to always just have some tracks under consideration. I went through and actually, so the way I've been like going through and going through the Wikipedia page of albums per year and like listening to the most notable ones, I did that with 2020 this week since I had some extra time. So that was, that was interesting. Uh, also for the record, the order of low post podcast guests was Ornovitz, Mark Stein, and then me. Wow. So it was number three. You have to bring yourself back down to earth after you've gloated about all the arenas you've been to. It's really not that remarkable to have been to a lot of arenas. Many people have done it. It's called <laughs> being a beat writer. You, you go to all the arenas pretty quickly. I haven't been to like, I'm still barely over half. 
Uh, let's talk about two TV in 2014. Is mentioned. Energy Arena might be the name might be changing soon. Uh, <laughs> Silicon Valley uh, came on the scene and was an immediate tour de force. And tour de force. Yeah, you heard wow. me. Wow, wow. I have spoken. <laughs> Uh, I remember, you know, I feel like so, you should talk about Silicon Valley because I, I've always been like arm's length. I've seen every single episode of Silicon Valley, but if, I might have missed. Was there a season this year? Uh, the finale was last summer fallish. Okay, I think I might have watched that. I'm not sure. <clears throat> I might have missed the last season of Silicon Valley, but it was never like my favorite TV show, and I always felt sort of like. I don't know. There, there's. You felt about it the way you feel about Silicon Valley. Kind of, where it's like Silicon Valley is more sinister in a lot of ways than the show is letting on, and I feel like like the show I don't itself. Know that the show is not letting on that. But but it, it was I think more the show just is like occasionally oh, being very explicit about that. When that those parts I think were better. I think over time it grew, but there was there was like. Just like people are nerdy here, like that is not as funny to me as you know. Like I, I don't know. I I I mean, started out with of all of them saying con- we're trying to, to change Nine the Nine world, thing. <clears throat> but it's like yeah, that's funny, and you're like making fun of people. But it's just like there is a seriousness to what is happening, you know, <clears throat> and some of I, the like racial inequality that's address. happening and gender inequality that's happening in Sil- Silicon Valley. That is, these are much larger issues, and how wealth is not being divided. The concept of satire. But I'm saying, is that concept you're aware of? Sometimes when you're just like minimize it down to things where it's just like this, what is happening is not okay. But you're just like, and these people are nerdy. Like that part of it is just like that's not the joke. I you haven't even watched this show. I stop talking about Silicon Valley because you apparently have never watched it. You just said you didn't watch the final season. I'm sure that changed everything. I'm pretty sure I did watch the final season, though. But also Camille Nanciati. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, we already loved it. Speaking of tour de forces. <laughs> uh, 2014 was the, uh, the True Detective season one year. Mm-hmm. Really? Any thoughts a, on that? I mean, just it, it was a just really not a fun TV show. It's funny that I'm talking about Silicon Valley and I'm like just making light of serious things. And I'm like, true detective, too serious, <laughs> bleak. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite shows came on the scene in You're the Worst, which uh, also wrapped up last year and was like such a strange thing for me to be into, I would say, in some ways, but also really hilarious. Was uh, this the Sufjan Stevens soup? Yes. Show? Yes. I've never never seen an episode of it, but I have some thoughts. Um, no, oh, God. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're gonna say they didn't tackle enough serious issues either. Uh, also, Bojack Horseman. Uh, I think I was actually thinking about Bojack Horseman a couple weeks ago, uh, in light of the you know pro pro of both racial inequality that exists throughout Hollywood and how 
as a show. In season one, they have Alison Brie as a white actress playing an Asian character, um, and Diane Wynn. But like over time, I feel like as a show really went out of its way. I'm assuming this is the only time we're going to talk about Bojack Horseman. Uh, <clears throat> went out of its way to cast like a diverse cast of characters. I mean, these are all they're all animated, uh, but like introducing young comedians and a diverse cast in different roles where it wasn't like like people of color typecast into certain characters or something. Um, it wasn't like certain characters are like traditional roles. I feel like Bojack Horseman really worked to break some of those racial stereotypes that exist. Um, and then also has like had a long theme about being asexual, which has never been discussed as far as I know in basically any television show. Uh, and for being when, when at its core element is a TV show about uh, <clears throat> an animated show about a um, anthropomorphic horse who is like a Bob Saget type character in full house. When you get to those next steps of it, it's just like, it was a pretty impressive TV show. And also, like, in the end, funny, but, you know, a serious TV show, ultimately. Um, and also kind of bleak, but, like, felt like it really balanced the tone of both. You know, it was it was able to criticize Hollywood in a way that didn't feel like it was reducing... It was like Silicon Valley, where they were, like, um, not taking the issues serious enough. <laughs> satirizing, again, is the word you're looking for. Satirizing. Uh I still, you know, Silicon Valley, you, do you, it's, it's a good show. You know, every once in a while, people ask the question, hey, what's the worst TV show that you've seen all the episodes for? <laughs> and the answer for us is probably something like Shasta McNasty. I've, have you seen every episode of Shasta McNasty? I definitely How would I know at this point? <laughs> How can I keep track? But as an adult, of shows that I know that I have seen every episode of, my answer to that is Mulaney. It's that bad? It's It wasn't great. But it was just like I kept sticking with it. Even after it got canceled, I watched all those episodes off my DVR. So that is the worst show I've ever watched all the episodes of. I've ne never seen an episode of Mulaney, but why was it so bad? I don't know. It just didn't work. Just something didn't click about it. I mean, I love his stand-up, which is why I was interested in it in the first place also probably at that point i don't know if i'd seen as much of the stand-up it was actually probably more based on his some podcast he did that i listened to and knowing that he was behind the uh stefan uh, sketches on snl i swear i knew nothing about john mulaney until like 2018 <laughs> i mean also liking nasim pedrad who was in that and she was a, a co-star in that one i there was it was a, a day where i was just like Somebody was talking about John Mulaney sold out like 10 nights at some venue in Chicago. And I was like, who the fuck? <laughs> I was like, he did what now? John Mulaney sold 20,000 tickets. Uh, and I was like, oh, actually, John Mulaney is the most famous comedian there is. I was like, the guy from that show that I watches? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I was bringing up Mulaney a lot. We definitely talked about it in 2014 at some point. Where you were like, 
I don't even, I don't even know the premise. I know nothing about the show, but I know that John Mulaney has been involved with a lot of really successful and really good television since then. So I'm really just baffled why this didn't work. Me too. I think I think so. It's John Mulaney. For that matter. <laughs> Sometimes it just doesn't work. All right, 2014 in movies. Boyhood was like a movie I sought out in the theater, which was pretty rare at this point in my life, and just loved it immensely. Wow. Big Austin year. Yeah, that was. Also, somehow, we talked about this, I think, when we talked about uh, the suburbs. Somehow, the soundtrack to a movie that did not yet exist. It's pretty incredible. Although, I guess it did exist. It was already being made. That... This, they they wrote the record that kind of sounds like this movie. Having those two happen in conjunction with each other in not consecutive years, but such a close proximity, and that Arcade Fire happened to be the biggest indie rock band in the world while this movie was coming out and from Austin, or from Texas, is pretty incredible how that ended up working out. Maybe not from, but having roots in Texas. Yes. Uh, also worth mentioning here, if we're talking about music, is the uh, the compilation of post-Beatles solo work that Ethan Hawke actually put together that is in this movie. And I don't know why now I can't remember the name. Of the... Post-Beatles solo work? Yeah. He made a compilation of, like, the solo members of the Beatles. Okay, the Black Album is what he calls it. Yeah, and you can you can find that on Spotify. I've listened to that. He calls it the Black Album. Yeah. As if Metallica and Jay Z don't exist. I you know, I think it's the, just the opposite of their White Album. <laughs> oh, I guess I, I get it. Huh. I'm unaware of any of this. He talks about that in the movie. He gives it to his son in the movie. Oh. Huh. Uh, I guess I've never seen it. No, I don't know. <laughs> it's been six it years. Like, I've had like 12 children since this time. That's, that's true. Uh, 2014, we've already talked about it. Draft day. Oh, speaking of tour de forces, tours de force. It's actually tour de force, but the S is silent now because it's plural. <laughs> they all have S's on them for each word, but they're all silent. <laughs> Quarter powder with cheeses. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, uh, anything else on 2014 movies? I don't know. I, I haven't dug deep enough on it. <clears throat> okay. Uh, no. I still want to hear you defend Silicon Valley, though. Like, what... I just don't understand how you think they're not making, like, satirizing, again, these issues. Like, their head of their fake Google is clearly totally evil. I Do you not see that? Did you not get that? You think they're a fake Google? Because I always imagine them as a Steve... Gavin Belson we're talking about here. Yeah. I always imagine him as a Steve Jobs type. No, I don't think he's supposed to be a Steve Jobs type. Because he's not creative at all. Hmm. You I think... mean, I don't, think he, I don't think he's, like, spe- any one specific person from Google. He's an amalgamation of different characters. 
I mean, the one thing that we we'll always wonder about at Silicon Valley is if the character who played their angel investor hadn't passed away after season one, how different would it have been? Christopher Evan Welch, who played Peter Gregory. Yes. <clears throat> so. Uh, I, I think part of and it was a, just like... a Seattle native. Oh, really? Oh, how about that? Uh, it was similar to the Brooklyn Nine-Nine thing that I mentioned, though. Where I was just like, I, I'm having a hard time getting past this and watching every single episode. But also, we're talking, you got Martin Starr out there, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> you got Camille Nanjiani. Look, I'm obviously going to watch Big Head. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, on that note... Thanks for listening. Thanks.